Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. My name is Rob. I'm a tour guide and the founder of Trip Hacks DC Tours. Normally on this podcast, I invite special guests to share their expert knowledge on a topic to help you make the best of your Washington, D.C. trip. This month's episode is going to be a little different. I don't have a special guest, and I don't have any tips or travel hacks. It's just me and an update on what's going on in the city right now, specifically as it relates to our tourism industry. I'm recording this on March 31st, 2020, and I have to say this has definitely been the wildest month I've ever experienced in the industry, so buckle up for the ride. I don't have any travel tips right now because, well, you really shouldn't be traveling right now. But I know a lot of people want to know what it's like on the ground here and what the future holds. So for this episode, I'm going to tell you the story of exactly what it's been like to be a small tour company owner for the first three months of 2020. I'm going to give some updates on what else is happening in Washington, D.C. right now. And then I'm going to talk about what I think the future holds. And finally, what it potentially means for you and a future Washington, D.C. trip. So with that said, here's my side of the story. Now, as some context, I've been a tour guide since 2013. That was the year that I started working for another big tour company here in D.C. I did bike tours, and I started off, you know, doing regular old tours of the monuments and memorials, the Capitol, the National Mall, and it was a lot of fun. I did them about once or twice a week, and I got to meet some really cool people. I got to tell some cool stories, and I got to ride a bike. That was probably my favorite thing about it was the fact that when I was thinking about getting a second job, I thought, well, I could work in a store or I could be a bartender or something, but hey, if I could ride a bike for a job, that would be pretty cool. So that's how I got started, and I did that for, you know, four years. And then in 2016, I had the idea for Trip Hacks DC. And I have to say that I kind of always had this idea ruminating in my head that I wanted to have my own tour company, but the problem was that it's really hard to start a company from scratch, especially one in this industry because we rely so heavily on advertising. But I finally figured it out in 2016, and in 2017, I launched it. Now, if you want to know the nitty-gritty details about starting the business, I was a guest on the Side Hustle Show earlier this year, and I shared that story. So I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes if you want to listen to it. Like I said, it's pretty in the weeds, but if you're really interested in the Trip Hex DC story, there it is. So 2017 was the first year, and it was a modest year. I gave about 30 private tours, and I was just happy that anybody would take a tour with me. It was a very simple business. It was me, and I gave private tours, which means you just paid one price, and everybody in your family got to go out on a tour with me, and there was nobody else out there. So very simple, very modest beginnings. That was 2017. 2018 was the growth year. I gave a lot more private tours, and I launched the Trip Hacks DC Trivia Tour, which is a public tour. Now, the reason I launched the public tour is because private tours are great, and they're my preferred way of showing folks around. But a private tour is a luxury travel experience. I get that. And not everybody can afford a luxury travel experience. So I would often have people write to me, and they would say, I really want to do a tour, Tripex DC tour, but I just can't swing the price. There's only two of us, or there's only three of us, or there's only one of me. And can I share it with other people so we can split the cost? And unfortunately, I didn't have a mechanism at the time to let people share, and I didn't want to get into that business of trying to matchmake, and it was just going to be too much for me. So I launched the public tour, and I said, the concept is simple. 
you buy one ticket for everyone in your group, and you show up and you go out with other people, up to 12 total in the tour group. And so that's how it started. 2019 was the year when I made some big investments into the company. I hired a paid intern to work for me over the summer and to do marketing, to write a lot of blog posts, do a lot of planning, and I started doing paid advertising that year as well. And most importantly, I added my second tour guide. So it wasn't just me anymore. Now I actually was starting to feel like a real company, you know, multiple people running these tours. And he did a lot of the trivia tours, and quite honestly, he's an amazing tour guide and did a really great job. 2020, this year, this was going to be the biggest year yet. I set a goal to sell 1,000 trivia tour tickets and double the size of the tour guide team. That was a month ago. Now, Triphex DC is in the red, and it's going to be a climb to get out of this hole. Now, in hindsight, I feel like we should have all seen this coming. And yet, almost none of us actually saw this coming. So, let me go back to the beginning of the year and walk you through exactly what happened. January 1st. The start of the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. Washington, D.C. tourism is very seasonal. January and February have very few tourists, which actually, trip hack, makes it a great time of year if you want to come and visit to avoid the crowds. Now, people say to me all the time, well, of course nobody comes in January and February. It's too cold. And that's just not true. It's actually not that cold here in D.C. The average temperatures in January and February are not below 32 or 0 Celsius, which means they're not freezing. And lots of cold places get plenty of folks during the winter. You know, go to a ski resort in the winter, and there are plenty of people there. So I think the reason why people don't come to D.C. in the winter is simply that most people come here when their kids are on school break. And January and February fall in between, you know, winter break or Christmas break, and then spring break, which is when everybody wants to take their spring trip. So January and February are just kind of wedged in there, and not a lot of people are going anywhere. Anyway, since there are very few tourists here, I try to spend January and February producing videos and podcasts and generally getting ahead on stuff like that, since I know that come spring, I'll have a lot less time to work on the content. I actually did a pretty good job of that this year. I pre-made a bunch of videos. I recorded five podcast episodes. Two of those episodes are already released, the National Parks episode from February and the Airbnb episode from March. The other three are on hold. And given how much things have changed, I might have to scrap them because it could be weird to talk about the city as if the pandemic never happened. So we'll see. January 26th. This was really the first hint that something bad was coming. And I remember this day because I texted my friend an article from the New York Times. And in this article, it talked about how China was suspending all groups and the sale of flights and hotel packages for its citizens who wanted to head overseas. Now, the reason why this is a big deal is because Chinese tourists are big business. In Washington, D.C., most tourists are Americans. 90% of tourists are Americans. But there still are a couple million people from international destinations who come here every year. And China is where most of them come from, by far. So our tourism board, Destination D.C., has made a pretty significant effort in attracting Chinese tourists. So the fact that they were cut off from traveling anywhere outside of China seemed like a pretty big deal. However, I'm pretty sure that in all the years of doing TripHacks DC tours, I've never had groups from China. And the reason is that a lot of the Chinese tourists travel in groups because they don't speak English. And unfortunately, if you don't speak English, we're not very good at accommodating you here in DC. We are a world capital, but we're not a huge city like some of the other world capitals are. And basically, if you don't know English you're kind of stuck. 
if you know Spanish, you might be able to get by. You know, a lot of people speak Spanish. But anything else, it, it's going to be really tough. So a lot of the Chinese tour groups, they travel together, and they travel with a translator. And the translator goes everywhere with them and kind of serves as the tour guide. And so for us, we're not really needed because they kind of already have a de facto tour guide. So I figured that this wouldn't directly impact me, and I didn't worry too much about it after that. January and February is also when I take my own personal vacation. This year I went to Scotland. It was awesome. I did a bunch of tours. They were all a ton of fun. Uh, The weather wasn't great, but it's also Scotland in the winter, so I can't really complain. Now, for those who don't know, Scotland is in the United Kingdom, and the UK has finally brexited the European Union. So I feel like that dominated the news cycle the entire time that I was over there, and I wasn't really paying attention to much else. So the next notable date was on February 5th. This was the day that I flew back to the U.S., I flew from Edinburgh to Dublin, and then Dublin to Washington, D.C. This is a bit beyond the scope of Trip Hacks D.C., but a bonus international trip hack for you is that when you're traveling to Europe, fly through Dublin. And the reason is that Dublin is one of the few airports in the world that has a U.S. border preclearance, which means that you go essentially through the U.S. border in the airport before you get onto the plane. So when you arrive at your destination, in this case when we arrived at Dulles Airport in Virginia— We just walked off the plane like it was any other domestic flight, like we had just flown in from Boston or something. There's no need for customs. There's no need for passport checks. You just walk out, get your bags, and you're done. So everyone who was traveling to the U.S. that day got asked a single additional screening question, which was, have you traveled to China in the last 14 days? Obviously, I hadn't, and so I said no. But this was the second hint that something bad was coming. But again, most Washington, D.C. tourists are Americans, so even if all international travel got cut off, it would still have relatively little direct impact on me. I got back from that trip, and I gave two private tours in February. They were both Sunday morning tours, and they both went great. February is typically such a slow month that I was perfectly happy just to give two tours. March is usually a pretty busy month for tours, but it's way busier in the second half of the month than in the first. So I asked my tour guide, Sam, if he wanted to put trivia tours on the calendar at the beginning of the month, knowing that they might not get booked. But he said, hey, it's worth trying. And I was pleasantly surprised when people did start booking them. The next big hint, and these are really starting to become red flags at this point, came on February 28th. I remember that day because two huge tourism conferences scheduled for the first week in March both got canceled at the last minute. The conferences were Arrival, which is for the tour industry, and ITB, which is a huge global trade show for the travel industry as a whole. They were both scheduled to be held in Berlin. When I say these got canceled at the last minute, I am not kidding. I know people who were literally at the airport when they got the news that the events were canceled. Some people were already in the air, and they didn't find out until they touched down in Germany that the events were not going on. Needless to say, there was a lot of emotions and opinions about this. Some people said the canceling was the right thing to do, and that the risk of bringing people from literally every corner of the globe to Germany was just too risky. If a single person was sick at the event, it could get dispersed all over the world. Now, other people were really upset because they thought it was sending the wrong message. They thought that it sent the message that it's not safe to travel, which, as folks who rely on people traveling to make a living, you can see is kind of a problem. Back here in the U.S., we only started perceiving the problem, and I think people felt like, Even if international travel was becoming unstable, domestic travel was still perfectly fine. 
The official government advice at that time was, if you're traveling inside the country, it's perfectly safe. The first trivia tour of the year went out on March 4th. My tour guide Sam led it. The tour wasn't sold out or even close to it, but I was just happy that it had some signups and he was able to go out. The next day, on March 5th, I flew from Washington to Orlando for PodFest Multimedia Expo. It was an amazing event. I was invited to speak on a panel with some really other great folks. I hope to go again in the future. The flight down was completely full, which honestly felt like every flight I've taken from D.C. in the past several years. If PodFest had been scheduled for a week later, it definitely would have been canceled. But it wasn't, and so it went on. I don't know how many people didn't come, but it sure felt like everyone who wanted to be there was there. I don't really recall any announcements about speaker changes because of cancellations, but I could be wrong. It just felt like everybody went. It was while I was in Orlando that the first domino fell. I got my first cancellation on March 7th. A family of four who was scheduled to go out two days later wrote in and said they were canceling their trip due to COVID-19. I was admittedly pretty frustrated, partly because the CDC guidance at the time, remember, was that it was still safe to travel domestically, just be careful, wash your hands, all that stuff. But I was also frustrated because they canceled about 36 hours before the scheduled start time. Now, our cancellation policy is a 50% refund if you cancel less than 48 hours in advance. But in this case, I decided not to enforce it, and I sent them a full refund without mentioning the policy. I flew back the morning of March 8th. The flight back was about two-thirds full. On this flight, I felt like people were much more aware of the guidance to wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, all that stuff. On March 9th, it felt like the universe was balancing out because another family of four signed up for that tour about an hour and a half before it was scheduled to depart. So in the end, it wound up going out with the exact same number of people as originally planned. March 9th was one of those rare but amazing late winter weather days. And it's the kind of day where it's still early enough in the year when it's not really that crowded on the National Mall either. Something else that was happening at this time that really started freaking everyone out. The school groups. The school groups were starting to cancel. Now, school groups are big business in D.C., I personally don't lead a lot of student tours because when bigger schools book multi-day tours, they do it with big tour companies. The week of March 9th is when they started dropping like flies. The initial reaction from the companies that sell these tours was basically to beg the school groups not to cancel. After all, the CDC guidance, still to this point, was saying that it was safe to travel domestically. I had a trivia tour scheduled on March 11th that I was planning to lead personally. This one had been sold out for over a week. So I was kind of worried that everyone was going to cancel, but no one did. All 12 people showed up on time, and we went out and had a ton of fun. However, this was also the day I realized business was going to be rocky at best over the next few weeks. Universities were starting to tell students not to come back to campus from spring break. Even one of the customers on my tour that night, a college student, got a message during the tour that he shouldn't come back. March 12th is what I call my day of reckoning. I had a ton of tours booked on the calendar for the last two weeks in March and the first week in April. But this was the day the cancellations started coming in. And they were fast, and they were furious. Every message was basically the same. Due to COVID-19, we're canceling our trip. Please cancel and refund our tour. Now, cancellations are just a part of this industry. I've dealt with cancellations before. No big deal. But never such a huge volume of them in such a short period of time. That afternoon, it was clear the March tours were not going to happen. I rushed over to my computer and pulled any remaining unbooked tours off the calendar. Then I posted a message on social media that tours were suspended for the rest of March. 
I actually had a private tour booked that evening, so I rushed out the door, went, and let it. The tour was great, but it was clear that things were already changing. The Lincoln Memorial still had people visiting, like us, but the crowds were light. They were like January-level crowds, not March-level crowds. The most noticeable thing was that there was almost no school groups there, which is not common for this time of year. Now, my tour went great. Everybody had a fun time. I really enjoyed spending three hours with the family. The next day was March 13th, Friday the 13th, which seems fitting looking back. I was still working through all the cancellation requests when I got a message from my credit card processor, Stripe. Now, I've been using Stripe for years and never had any issues until now. I've never even had to contact or support for anything. It's just always worked. But on Friday the 13th, I got an email from them, and it said, We're reaching out to let you know that one or more refunds issued to your customers are currently pending due to insufficient funds in your Stripe account balance. While you may still issue refunds, no further refunds will be processed and sent to your customers until you have sufficient funds in your account. Then it said to contact support, which I immediately did. They told me that I should wire the money to their bank account in San Francisco and sent me the details. Okay, fine. I got on the phone, called my bank, and told them I needed to do a wire transfer for my business account. They said, okay, what's the PIN number for wire transferred? I said, I don't know. How would I know my PIN number? And the person said, well, have you ever done one before? Of course I hadn't. I never needed to. So he explained that since I'd never done one, I needed to go into the branch and set it up there. The closest bank branch to me closes at 5 p.m., and it isn't open on the weekend. So I rushed over and arrived there at 4.30 p.m. After waiting for the person in front of me, and after some technical glitches, it wound up taking about an hour to do the wire transfer. And it cost me $65, but eventually it did get done. Over the weekend, it started to become clear that things were going to get a lot worse before they got better. April tours no longer seemed feasible. A lot of folks who were booked on one of our April tours had already written in to request a refund. So at that point, I removed all the April tours from the tour calendar. And for those who hadn't already canceled, I let them know that I was proactively canceling and refunding their tour. I decided to leave May tours up with the slimmest hope that things might turn around, but folks who were scheduled in May quickly wrote me to cancel anyway. And that was it. March 18th was the day I processed the last of the cancellations. So that means it took six days for all of March, April, and May to get wiped right off the calendar. It was swift, and it was painful. So that brings us to today, March 31st. Not much has happened on the tour front. The mayor ordered all non-essential businesses closed through at least April 24th, and the mayor issued a stay-at-home order with no written end date which means it's actually a crime to leave your house right now to go somewhere other than a place you absolutely have to be. The list of essential and non-essential businesses is kind of interesting. In the essential category are things you'd expect, like grocery stores and pharmacies. Then there's liquor stores, which I guess, depending on your perspective, is essential. In the non-essential category are things like gyms, hair salons, and then tour guides and tour services, called out by name, which is fair, I guess since it's literally impossible to run a tour if you're going to keep everyone at least six feet apart from each other. It's just interesting to me because usually tour companies are a footnote at the bottom of the page, not called out so directly like that. In the past couple weeks, I've had one person write in asking if I was planning to run June tours. Other than that, it's been the quietest period I've ever had for Trip Packs DC. I'm still making videos and podcasts on a regular basis, but the numbers are way down. I'll get more into that in a little bit. 
I know that a curiosity that people have is what the city's like right now. At this point, we've seen the photos of abandoned Times Square or the video of the Las Vegas Strip with no traffic, and they are admittedly quite dramatic. Now, I haven't been to the National Mall, or really anywhere outside my neighborhood, in the past two weeks, so I can only speak from what I've seen on the news. In my neighborhood, things feel simultaneously the same and completely different. Let me explain. When I go to walk my dogs, everyone else is out walking their dogs. So that's very much the same. People are exercising in the park, and that's pretty much how it was before, too. However, I also live in a neighborhood with a lot of restaurants, so I'm used to the hustle and bustle of people coming and going, especially on the weekend. So it was quite jarring to walk my dog last Saturday night, around 9 p.m., a time when all the restaurants would normally be hopping and people would be out having a fun time, and the streets were completely quiet, and it just did not have the feel that I'm used to. I have no idea how any of these restaurants are going to make it, honestly. One of the reasons restaurants come and go so frequently as it is is because it's so hard to turn a profit. I don't have any insider knowledge, but I have heard that the rent for some restaurants in D.C. can be $20,000 or $30,000 per month based on their square footage, which means you would need to bring in $1,000 every single day just to cover the rent, not to mention the food, the staff, any of the other bills, or actually, you know, making a profit. I know there's talk of some government support for small businesses, but I haven't seen a clear articulation of how that's going to work, whether it's going to be grants, whether it's going to be loans, and what the conditions are. So at this point, I have no idea. Like I said, I haven't left my neighborhood in weeks, but I do know that metro and buses have been running this entire time. They're still open because people who work at the essential businesses that I mentioned before still need to get to work. Metro rail ridership is down 93%, 93% from normal levels, which is downright insane, honestly. Metro has closed over a dozen stations, either because the station is close enough to another one where they're not needed with such reduced ridership, or because they're in an area where almost no one was using them to come or go. Buses have switched to boarding only from the rear door, and this is a good idea because it keeps the driver from interacting with a lot of people. But it also means that during the pandemic, all bus rides are free, since the fare box is located next to the driver. Now, as far as the tourist sites, they're basically all closed. So this means all of the museums, the Capitol, the Library of Congress, National Archives, National Zoo, Kennedy Center, the U.S. Botanic Gardens, basically anything that you need to go inside, indoors, or in a gate, it's closed. When I made a video about visiting D.C. during a government shutdown, I said that even if you come and all the federal sites are closed, you could still salvage your trip by visiting a private museum or going to a concert or checking out a sports game. But with this, all of those backups are gone too. There's basically nothing on the table. Now, a few folks have asked me about the Monuments Memorials. And again, I haven't been there in a few weeks. But as far as I know, they have not been barricaded off. You can still walk up the steps of the Lincoln Memorial right now. However... We are in a stay-at-home order, and it would be committing a crime to go do that, so I wouldn't recommend it. But it is possible that at some point they're going to erect barricades and just close down the memorials. They did this during the October 2013 government shutdown. I remember giving tours during that time for the other company I worked for, and it was a bummer. It really was. Now, the Jefferson Memorial and the Tidal Basin, those are closed. And this is a really unfortunate story, because the National Cherry Blossom Festival is awesome. It's one of my favorite times of year, the beginning of spring, all that good stuff. 
And this year, the cherry blossoms bloomed early. So basically, on the first day of spring, March 20th, they were in peak bloom. And with the Cherry Blossom Festival canceled, the original guidance was, okay, you can go, it's outside, but be smart about it, don't crowd, stay six feet away from people, all that stuff. And guess what? People didn't do it. They crowded in, they jam-packed the place. And to me, you, you could have seen this coming because I've been giving tours long enough that I can tell you that the weekend of Peak Bloom, the Saturday and Sunday of Peak Bloom, it is absolutely mobbed down at the Tidal Basin. I'm proud of the fact that I've never lost anyone on my tours. Well, I shouldn't say never because I've only done it twice. And both times we're doing during the weekend of Peak Bloom. It's just so crowded. It's a sea of humanity. So eventually enough was enough. They brought in the police, the National Guard, and they basically closed everything down. Hotels are considered essential businesses, and many of them are still open. I have noticed some weird things happening on websites like TripAdvisor, where they're still saying hotels have availability, even though when I know that particular hotel is closed. So it's always good practice, but especially in a time like this, to go on the hotel's own website and book from there if you absolutely need a hotel. Interestingly, I haven't really seen any fire sales on hotel rooms, which you might figure would happen, especially given how low airfares have gotten right now, but I haven't really found it. I guess they figure that no one's going to take advantage of a deal right now, and anyone staying in a hotel is there because they're stranded and they're just going to pay what they pay. I can't imagine that hotel occupancies are very high at the moment. So all in all, you can't come to Washington, D.C. right now, nor would you want to. The final question is, what happens next, and where do we go from here? I think for a lot of businesses, there are really three questions. One, when is it legal to reopen? Two, when is it safe to reopen? And three, when are customers actually going to come back? Now, the first question is sort of the easiest, but given the stay-at-home order with no end date, who knows? The second question, when is it safe to reopen, is going to be a little trickier. It might be the case that at some point, businesses are allowed to reopen, but under certain rules. So for example, maybe a restaurant can reopen, but only seat people at every other table. Running tours could be difficult under conditions like that. I might only be able to reopen private tours at the beginning. I don't know. The last question, when customers are actually going to come back, that has the most uncertainty. Now, I don't have any doubt that people are going to need a vacation after all of these stay-at-home orders and self-quarantines. But the economic situation has shifted so dramatically that I have no idea what people are going to be able to afford once this is all done. You know, I might be able to reopen tours in June, knock on wood, but if business is down, say, 50% through the rest of the year, that's a substantial hit. In any other year, if business was down 10%, that would be concerning. If it was down 20%, it would be alarming. And if it was down any more than that, Alarm bells would be going off left and right. But this year, this year is so different because we dropped from full steam ahead to literally zero in less than a week. So now anything that's more than zero feels like a huge relief. I was thinking about 19 years ago when we had a big hit to travel and tourism after 9-11. When something like that happens, the strategy is fairly simple. People are afraid to travel because they think they might be a victim of an attack. So... You convince them that the city is safe and that they won't be a victim of an attack. When all of this started, this was the exact strategy that a lot of people were taking, like those tour companies that sell tours to the school groups. Their gut reaction was to send them to the CDC guidance and say, hey, look, as long as you wash your hands, 
And as long as you don't leave the country, you're going to be okay. But this is so much different from something like 9-11 because it's going to be really hard to convince people that it's safe to travel again. It might take a really long time. There's just so much we don't know today on March 31st. So what am I going to be doing these next few months since I won't be out on the National Mall giving any tours? Obviously, I'm still making podcasts like this one. I need to decide if the episodes that I pre-recorded are going to be appropriate to post or if too much has changed. I really don't want to scrap them because I had some amazing, fantastic guests that I really want to have onto this podcast. Now, as far as the YouTube channel goes, it's admittedly really tough for me to open up the Creator Studio dashboard and see the numbers right now. For those of you who've never made YouTube videos before, there's a thing called the Creator Studio, and they give you an almost overwhelming number of statistics. But the ones that are front and center every time you log in are how many views, how many watch minutes, and how much ad money you have from the last 28 days compared to 28 days prior to that. Right around the first week of March, the Trip Hacks DC YouTube channel really started crashing. There were days in March when the number of video views was so low, I had to go all the way back to 2017 to find comparable days. And remember, 2017 was the year that Trip Hacks DC was brand new. The reason for the huge drop is that there's a few videos that consistently get a few hundred views every single day. The top videos on the channel are How to Ride the DC Metro, Tips for Visiting the Smithsonian Museums, Monuments and Memorials Tips, and My Favorite Cheap Eats. And those are all topics that people just are not interested in at the moment. Which, I mean, yeah, with Metro ridership down 93%, who's going on YouTube and typing in the words How to Ride DC Metro? No one. With all of the restaurants closed, except for takeout, how many people are looking up Rob's favorite cheap eats? No one. So even though some of my newer videos have done well in the first few days after I published them, the huge drops in views from those evergreen videos is really, really hard to overcome. And I know it's not just me. I co-hosted an episode of Travel Man Podcast a few weeks ago. I'll leave a link to that down in the show notes. And Mark from Walter's World joined us as well. And he said that they're seeing some of their lowest numbers of views in something like eight years. Uh, Chris Rainey from Yellow Productions, he mentioned in a live chat a few weeks ago that his views are down 50%. And that was a few weeks ago. Really hope things haven't gotten worse for him by now. I've checked out some of the folks who have similar channels to mine in other cities and looked up their numbers on Social Blade, and it's pretty grim. One channel looked like their views were down something like 75 to 80% compared to earlier in 2020. Now... I know people are thinking this because they say it to me all the time. They say, but Rob, if everyone's in quarantine, aren't they a captive audience? Wouldn't your travel videos let them have a bit of virtual escape? And I think the answer, at least so far, is very clearly no. People watch Trip Hacks DC or people watch Walter's World videos because they're taking their own trip and they want to make the most of it. That's what these videos are there for. They're using our videos to design their own experience not because they want to live vicariously through us. Now, there are some YouTube channels that are absolutely exploding right now. A friend of mine keeps talking about how gardening and yoga channels are blowing up right now. I mean, I'm talking like triple-digit gains in the exact same period of time that we've seen these huge drops, which I do think makes perfect sense. People home on quarantine can do yoga in their living room or work on building up a backyard garden right now. Something like planning a trip, it just seems so distant. Another thing I'd say is that the idea that people are home bored is not accurate from what I can tell. 
A lot of people who I know are home, but they're definitely not bored. If they're lucky, they're home trying to juggle working from home with childcare since their kids aren't in school. If they're not so lucky, they're focused on getting their resume together and finding any kind of job right now, anything to help pay the bills. They're not watching travel tips videos. Now, on the other hand, if you have a YouTube channel and your audience is primarily school-aged kids, you're probably doing great because they are bored and they're looking for something to do. And I know a whole lot of parents who have basically given up at this point, handed their kids an iPad, and let the iPad do the babysitting. So there are a lot of dynamics and variables at play here. So don't assume that because someone has a YouTube channel that they're crushing it during this time. Now I'm hopeful that the views will return as people start getting back into trip planning mode. I just have no idea how soon that's going to be. So in the meantime, I'm going to switch to a little bit different type of videos. Less travel tips and more, hey, isn't that interesting, type videos. So I hope people like it well enough and that it keeps TripHacksDC afloat for a while. Like I said in the video I made on this topic, I'm not going to do a Patreon. I'm not going to do a GoFundMe or anything like that. I think there are a lot of people in the world right now who need a lot more help than me. And I hope that we can get them the help that they need right now and that people will come back and do a tour with me later. If you do want to help me out, I have a few ideas for things you can do that are simple, only take a few minutes, and don't cost you any money. If you're listening to this in a podcast app, leave a rating and a review of the podcast. If you like DC YouTube videos, keep watching DC YouTube videos and share them with your friends. And if you want to sign up for the DC newsletter, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash newsletter. I promise I don't send a lot of emails, but when this thing is over and tours are back up and running, I will send a message to everyone on the newsletter list and let them know. Otherwise, thanks for making it all the way to the end of the episode. That's my March 2020 story for the history books. It will be really interesting to listen back in a few months from now and see how this holds up. But until then, stay safe out there.